welcome to A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics, and love. I'm Danny, and you and I today are set to explore thousands of years of linguistic, cultural, and intellectual history through one very influential language, Sanskrit. Our expert navigator is Krishnan Ramprasad, and he's here to give us an enthusiastic introduction to this ancient and far-reaching language. So, without further ado, let's begin our journey. Right, so for this episode of A Language I Love Is, I have the pleasure to be with my close friend, Krishnan Ramprasad, Dr. Ramprasad, as, uh, if you of, must. Quite, as of quite recently <laughs> as well, uh, still sinking in, I imagine, in some small way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Krishnan is a junior research fellow at the University of Oxford, having recently completed a PhD at the University of Cambridge. And his focus is on the Indo-European language family, this big, broad language family that stretches from Irish to Bengali. He specifically works on the early members, the early documented members of this family, uh, things like Latin and ancient Greek. But today, at least for this episode, he has chosen to talk about one specific branch or member of Indo-European that he has a real love for and has really dedicated quite a lot of time to. So, Krishnan. Welcome. How are you feeling? I feel great. Thank you very much for having me on uh, and inviting me to talk about a language I love. Okay, Uh, (laughs) so tell us, what is a language that you love? A language I love is Sanskrit. It's one of the older members of the Indo-European language family, uh, but beyond its kind of value in a comparative context, which um, we'll probably get a chance to talk about, it's just this uh, incredible universe uh, of texts and, and culture and religion largely centred on uh, India uh, and the subcontinent. And yeah, I'd love to talk about it a little bit more. Wonderful. Well, I think you're exactly the expert we need because this is definitely a language that has an extremely rich linguistic history, cultural history, I mean, of enormous value for South Asia and, and beyond. Let's start off back in time. Let's start off with the origins of Sanskrit. When do we think that Sanskrit was a native language, their first language for people? It has this great history as a classical language, a language of philosophy and science and religion, but when were people speaking Sanskrit as their mother tongue? That's a very good question, and if I could give you an authoritative answer, I would be I won't say a rich man, but potentially with a slightly more (laughs) secure (laughs) academic position than I am now. The difficult thing about Sanskrit is that we are confident that it was a native language and spoken well before our earliest written evidence. So our earliest written evidence for, if not Sanskrit, languages that are closely related to Sanskrit dates only as far back as a few hundred years BC. And the oldest manuscripts we have for Sanskrit are much younger than that because they're, they're written on typically banana leaf manuscripts, which uh, don't last very long. Uh, so our earliest manuscripts are only maybe up to one and a half thousand years old, a bit older. But as a spoken language whose texts were passed through an oral tradition of recitation, uh, we have a, a lot of older texts preserved, which probably date at the earliest level, if we think of the earliest Sanskrit texts, the Rig Veda, the earliest it could have been spoken would have been maybe 1500 BC, something like that. And the latest that it could have started to have been spoken is probably around 1200 BC. Now, that's one text, of course. 
the language could have been spoken before that text um, was composed. But uh, as a ballpark figure, I would put some money on saying that it was spoken as a native language in the latter half of the second millennium BCE. Right, okay. But this huge time gap between our sources and between when we think this language was a native language, how do we know that? That is a, a really uh, interesting and somewhat challenging question um, because we have to understand something about the way languages exist over time. And the thing about languages uh, is that they change a lot. And part of how we can gauge how old uh, a text is, which is passed on through an oral tradition rather than by writing it down, is to say, okay, well, we know that, uh, let's say, the, the Sanskrit of this period looked like this. And we know that looking at the language family, or ancient Greek looks like this, and Hittite looks like this. And we think, well, how long does it take for a language to evolve uh, from one state to another? So if we see features in, in an oral text that are very archaic, we think, well, we know that this goes back a lot further than what's written down. And if you take, you know, the, the time of the earliest Sanskrit manuscripts, we have a good idea of um, the sort of descendant languages, not of Sanskrit directly, but of the Indo-Aryan language family, we know what they looked like at that time, and it's very, very different from Sanskrit. So really what we're, what we're working on is a combination of linguistic theory. We're also, from a non-linguistic point of view, you can look at the percolation of ideas. So if you have a text where you know, okay, well, the Upanishads or whatever, they, these are, seem to be written at this time, and they have this idea which seems to have percolated from an earlier text, then we can look uh, through the literary and philosophical tradition as a sense of how long these things have been around. But it is very much a, a layer of uncertainty that, that covers all of this. Right. So a a lot is going into making these claims about when Sanskrit was spoken, when these texts were first starting to be composed. It's linguistic, it's cultural context, it's intellectual context as well. So where is Sanskrit being spoken? I mentioned previously that it has a huge influence, a kind of Sanskrit-speaking or Sanskrit-influenced zone, but that's not perhaps its original homeland. So give us a sense of geography. Yeah, and, and this is again a, a very difficult thing to establish for certain because uh, the earliest Sanskrit speakers seems to have been quite nomadic, so they moved around quite a lot. There isn't direct archaeological evidence for, ah, we can see this is, you know, a Sanskrit inscription from this place at this time. We have a good idea. So we're working again off estimations as to rivers that are mentioned and, and areas and even quite fun things like, oh, do they have a word for horse? Yes, they do. Do they have a word for rice? No, they don't. That seems to be a borrowing, not an Indo-European word. So north of where the rice paddies are. Uh, but generally, I think estimations will put the earliest region for early Sanskrit speakers in what is now northwest India, Pakistan, even Afghanistan. But yeah, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, the, the spread in terms of places where Sanskrit was spoken or, or had some kind of linguistic uh, trace go much, much further east and south, all the way into Southeast Asia and all, all throughout uh, the uh, subcontinent and South Asia. Yes, fascinating. So spread out from that original North Indian homeland, you know, vast. I mean, we're talking the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. All the countries and all the cultures that surround that body of water have been in some sort of contact. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there are Sanskrit place names that crop up in Southeast Asia. There are Sanskrit words that make their way over the Himalayas into Tibetan, Chinese, even Japanese. I believe that the word Zen, the Japanese word Zen, has an origin in Sanskrit. So we're talking enormous cultural import for this language. Why this success then? Why does Sanskrit gain this prestige as a language? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think when we're thinking a lot of the spread through East Asia, um, it was often to do with Buddhism. So early Buddhist texts are in Sanskrit. 
they spread as Sanskrit texts, they also spread in translation. And often it's through translation and it's through religious vocabulary being developed in uh, a recipient language, let's say Tibetan um, or Chinese. So the religious vocabulary is one way that it spreads. It can also spread just through trade routes. But I, I think the, the religious aspect is a, is a large aspect of it. And the other aspect is that there are so many languages that are descended not from Sanskrit per se, but from re- languages related to Sanskrit that have all of these uh, similar sets uh, of vocabulary that you can see these kind of uh, general Indo-Aryan words spreading by speakers having those languages. So you mentioned this word Indo-Aryan. Mm. That is the larger family to which Sanskrit belongs. Can you place it in its general context? What's the, what's the genealogy of Sanskrit and what might be its closest linguistic cousins? So if we work our way up the family tree, so we're starting with Sanskrit and we know that's the Indo-Aryan uh, branch, the closest cousin to Sanskrit would be Iranian languages. So we can talk again of a, a node, a branch, a language family called the Indo-Iranian language family. So that includes Sanskrit and the modern Indo-Aryan languages, languages like Hindi, Punjabi, Bengali. It also includes languages like Persian and ancient Iranian languages like Avestan. And these are all very close related. If you know Sanskrit, or by the same token, if you know one of these old Iranian languages, then Sanskrit looks somewhat familiar, a bit like speakers of Italian and Spanish, let's say. If we go back a little bit further, we then start locating Indo-Iranian within its broader Indo-European context. And there are two language families which, for slightly different historical reasons, seem to share some similarities with Indo-Iranian languages. And these are sometimes surprising to people who, who haven't studied it. So one group of languages that share some similarities with Sanskrit are the Slavic languages. So one of the big things that uh, you can sort of say uh, is if you take a word like the word for a hundred, and if the word for a hundred begins with a k sound, then it's a kentum language, like Latin. If it begins with a s or a sh, then it's a satem language. So Sanskrit, you have shatam, which is, gives you satem. Um, and I believe in the Slavic languages, although I don't know, the word for a hundred is... Begins with an s. It begins well, with an s, yeah. not a k. It's sto in Czech. Perfect. So that's one way where the Slavic languages seem quite close to Indo-Iranian. It makes sense geographically, if you think, uh, especially the eastern edge of the Slavic-speaking world is very much uh, overlapping with the western edge of the Indo-Iranian-speaking world. The other group of languages, although it's, well, it's one language in particular that is quite similar to Sanskrit, is Greek. So people can talk about proto greco indo aryan as a language which yeah. eventually developed uh, into uh, lots of these different ones. But, but should they? Well, you know, that's a, that's a question for a, a different podcast, if, right. if, if it's a podcast at all. <laughs> uh, okay. But uh, they, this is we're looking more at the kind of deeper structural level. So how do you form comparative forms? So how do you say something bigger rather than just big? Or how do you form superlatives, big guest? And Greek and Sanskrit seem to share some of the ways that they do that and other things, the way they form relative clauses is quite similar. So there are certain aspects of the language on a structural level that are closer to Greek. And then we zoom out and then we have all of the rest of the Indo-European language family. So basically, I would say Iranian, nice close cousin, Slavic, a neighbor with whom Indo-Iranian shares some of these features, and Greek as another branch, which is quite similar in a, in a different set of ways. Right, so we're going further and further away from Sanskrit, both in terms of genealogy and in terms of geography, and the similarities are decreasing as we do so. So Sanskrit is a cousin, a very distant cousin of English, but the connections between the two, I mean, as an expert, you can spot them, but they're not particularly obvious. These are languages that have not been one language for millennia. 
Exactly. So there are some words that you can point to in English and you can point to in Sanskrit and you can say, ah, you know, they, they were once the same word. Some of them are surprisingly similar. The word bond in English and the word bandhum in Sanskrit, they sound quite similar, they mean quite similar things, and they are uh, indeed what we would say cognates. They were once one word. Some of them are slightly harder to find. The word for truth in Sanskrit is sat or satya, literally isness, something like that. And we see that in the uh, slightly antiquated English exclamation forsooth, meaning indeed. And the sooth in forsooth is the sat in satya. And soothsayer, someone who tells the truth or tells the future specifically. Sanskrit, I think, as we've established, has enormous cultural, uh, philosophical, scientific importance for India, for the modern nation of India today. India, as a country tremendously linguistically diverse. We are talking a huge spread of language and even language families within the borders of what is now the modern state. But I believe that the relationship of Sanskrit to these modern-day languages is not straightforward. There is a connection, but I was wondering if you could elaborate on a language like Hindi, huge language today, a global language. What's its relationship to Sanskrit, the ancient language? So this is a fantastic question, because there are a couple of things at play when we talk about modern Indo-Aryan languages and their relationship to Sanskrit. And I slightly dance around the issue, but I'll make myself clear now. We can't treat any modern Indo-Aryan language as if it is a direct descendant of the Sanskrit found in the Rig Veda. Because if you take any language today, and you think of, let's say, English, since we're talking in English, the English in the north of England, the south of England or the English of the aristocracy versus the English of working class. There's a huge amount of variation here. There are all these different, we'll call them varieties. Let's not say dialects, let's not say accents, let's not say languages, but different varieties. And the variety that's preserved in literature is a very specific kind of Sanskrit. But there must have been a whole host of different spoken varieties, what I might call vernaculars, where they're not preserved through these texts. And so historically, what we have to imagine is that we're seeing a small part of a much more varied linguistic landscape in 1500 BC. You know, it's amazing we have any of it, but most of it we actually don't have. So when we look at the modern Indo-Aryan languages, they are all descended from some forms of something which we could call Sanskrit, but it's not a one-to-one apostolic ancestral development from the Sanskrit of the Rig Veda to even the Sanskrit of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, which are, again, another thousand years later. And then it's not a straightforward development from that into the Indo-Aryan languages. It's a similar situation to the Romance languages and Latin. The Latin that you find in Ciceronian texts is not a direct ancestor to modern French. But there are some groups and clusters of vernaculars that develop in a certain way. So we can think of Sanskrit as an ancestor language, but it's not. The second thing which is relevant for especially language like Hindi, since you mentioned it, is language contact. So let's say that something like Sanskrit, and a variety of Sanskrit, develops into old and middle Indo-Aryan languages. What we then have uh, in the subsequent uh, thousand years is a large amount of contact with Iranian languages. So if you take Hindi now, there's a lot of vocabulary in there, which actually is Arabic. So it goes from Arabic into Persian and Persian into Hindi throughout the Islamic world. An example is the word for book. Hindi has two words for book. One is the Sanskrit word. So in Sanskrit, the word for book is pustakam. So you have pustak. That's one word for a book, a particular kind of book. But the more normal word is kitab, which is the same as you get in Arabic uh, and you get it through Persian. So that's one form of language contact. Of course, Hindi, if you've ever heard Hindi spoken and you don't know it, 
the first thing you'll recognize is you'll see lots of English words. There are lots of English words in Hindi. And so any modern Indo-Aryan language is simultaneously has a layer of something inherited from something very close to classical and uh, pre-classical Sanskrit. It's got layers of contact on top of that. So if we were to put it crudely, and you can correct me if you don't like this, the relationship between Hindi and other Indo-Aryan languages today and Sanskrit is not like a great-great-grandfather, but perhaps more like a great-great-uncle. Is that fair to say, or like a cousin five times removed? Very much part of the same family, but we're not talking about direct descendants. That's not the language that is behind our Sanskrit texts, like the Rig Veda. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. I don't know that everyone would agree with me on that, but I think it just makes sense that given the wide diversity in the modern Indo-Aryan languages, the idea that even all of these languages would have descended from a singular uh, form at one point is something which fits well with a very 19th century idea of these branching nodes and these phylogenies or the family trees where one becomes many. But actually, it's all a little bit more complicated than that. Of course, of course. Yes, as it always is. And this is a problem that this podcast is going to continue to run into as we struggle to define a language, a dialect, a variety. We're just going to carry on and do the best we can with these uh, pretty crude terms that we have. One thought that occurs to me is that the picture is even more muddled because the modern-day Indo-Aryan languages get words from Sanskrit. They're actually reborrowing in the same way that there are many words in modern-day Italian that have come from Latin, not inherited, but they've been taken from Latin sources and made part of modern-day Italian. The same thing is happening in Hindi. I believe there are a lot of uh, Sanskrit words that have been taken from these these great sources to which Hindi speakers have access and made part of the modern-day language. So it's theoretically possible that Hindi has doublets, words that both come directly from, not Sanskrit, but Sanskrit's era of language, and then directly from the Sanskrit sources. So this is a complicated picture of language. Indeed, and the example I use of pustak is almost certainly a borrowing from Sanskrit. And I should probably say at this point, um, since you mentioned Latin and it would be relevant, is that Sanskrit becomes codified as a classical language with a fixed form, really about... 2,000 years ago, more or less. And so there's a substantial literature in Sanskrit that continues all the way up to this day, which is written in Sanskrit of a very particular form. And classical Sanskrit, just like classical Latin, acts as this language for philosophy and for science and for literature simultaneously with the contemporary spoken vernacular form. So if you want to reach for a a high register word, a word that's going to make you sound intelligent uh, or literary, you take it straight from the Sanskrit. So an example for a doublet would be something like, in Sanskrit, the verb for to listen is shru, with a r in it. And you see this in a name, like shruti. Shruti, which literally means uh, that which is heard. It's often used in Sanskrit to refer to sacred literature because it's recited, therefore you hear it. In Hindi, of course, other than the very common name shruti, the verb for to listen is su. So suno, listen. And that makes sense because we expect a sound change to happen between Sanskrit and uh, contemporary Indo-Aryan languages where shra becomes simplified to just sa. So shru becomes su. So whenever you see a shra word like shruti uh, existing in Hindi simultaneously with this su word, then you're getting a doublet where you have an inherited form which has developed over the course of time and another erudite form where you've just taken it straight out of the Sanskrit. Sanskrit is clearly playing a huge role in the linguistic life of India today, which 
leads me to ask, and perhaps this isn't a very easy question to answer, is it a historical language? Is Sanskrit extinct, defunct, or is Sanskrit still alive today? Sanskrit is very much alive and well in a certain sense today. There are some places where Sanskrit is spoken. I don't believe that it's anyone's native language anymore, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not spoken. Uh, It's very much used in certain communities. But more than that, so much of religious and cultural life in India is shot through with Sanskrit, particularly if you look at the Hindu weddings, if you look at Hindu ceremonies, there will often be parts of the ceremony that is conducted in the vernacular, but often parts of it will be done in Sanskrit. And people will have mantras which they recite which are often sanskrit even the uh, in some form or another uh, although it's it's very bad sanskrit even the IPL the Indian Premier League cricket tournament has a sanskrit motto now it's quite a, a bad one um it's meant to be a translation of the english where talent meets opportunity which someone has rendered as yatra pratipa avsara prapnotihi and they've done two things which would not happen in Sanskrit, apart from the overall phrasing, which sounds a little bit odd. Um, but they have avsara instead of avasara. But also prapnotihi with this e at the end uh, is a very much the way that, a bit like in English, if you say Latin, is like saying, you know, hocus pocus um, or ruder versions in Monty Python. You're just adding ihi or uh, uhu at the end of words as a way of trying to capture the Sanskrit. So prapnotihi for something which is, should actually just be prapnoti. Uh, is a way of making it sound a bit Sanskrit. So, okay, that's not uh, real Sanskrit, but it gives this idea of just like Latin mottos, we want to have it as a nice grand occasion, we use some Sanskrit. So you have a certain kind of uh, literary style that wants to keep it going. You have a very organic religious element to it, and you have, I think they've just released a film in Sanskrit, so it still very much exists as a literary language. After that wealth of information about the Sanskrit language, I think now it's time to turn away from the language in the abstract and talk about somebody who cares very deeply about this, i.e. yourself. So the first of my three questions for this podcast is, what is your relationship to this language? How did you come to know about Sanskrit? I know that you grew up in the UK, where the general knowledge of Sanskrit is, fair to say, minimal, certainly more so than in in India. So tell us, what's your relationship to Sanskrit? How did you hear about this language? And why is it important to you? So the beginnings of my relationship with Sanskrit are indeed very personal and not necessarily very linguistic with a capital L. My name is a Sanskrit word. It has a suffix on it, which gives me away as having Tamil heritage, because the N on the end of Krishna is a typical way of forming men's names in Tamil. But Krishna itself is a Sanskrit word. Probably most people will know that it refers to the god Krishna, or the avatar of Vishnu, called Krishna. It literally has the meaning of dark, used to describe often clouds or skin. And that's where the epithet uh, of Krishna comes from. And... As I've already mentioned, I have Indian heritage. Sanskrit is something which I grew up with, and being a Hindu and Christian household, I had a lot of different linguistic exposures as a child, even though I did grow up, to my eternal shame, a monolingual English speaker. But my real journey with Sanskrit as an academic language and as a linguist came when I was an undergraduate. I did my first degree in linguistics, and I loved my linguistics degree very much, but 
it's one of those degrees where you have so many different languages and you just can't focus on all of them at once. And you're looking at very big theoretical questions. What is language in historical linguistics? How do languages change? I really liked the idea of taking one language, and I had studied others in school, but of course not Sanskrit, and just really learning it thoroughly, reading some texts and, and going down that path. And so I had, on the one hand, a personal reason that this language might have mattered to me independently of me being a linguist, but also as a linguist, and especially someone who already had this idea of wanting to do historical linguistics, wanting to do comparative linguistics, Sanskrit is an incredibly attractive option because I've already mentioned that it's very old. There's also a huge amount of it. I, I can't stress enough how much Sanskrit there is. So... It's really a wealth of material for doing any kind of uh, study on uh, especially comparative linguistics. So as I moved towards doing historical linguistics, which has become my trade, Sanskrit was kind of there in the background. And I couldn't take and examine it, sadly. So like the nerd I am, I just showed up to lessons anyway and, and tried to learn it without having to do it for an exam. And then as the years went by, I started doing more research on Sanskrit. I then started teaching it. Well, I sort of started teaching it and researching it at the same time. And now it is a huge part of what I do. So it's a sort of two-part journey. One goes back to being a child and having this Hindu background and having Sanskrit and hearing it and growing up and knowing the stories that are written in these Sanskrit texts. And the other part of it is as a linguist, as a historical linguist, as a classicist, because I was also doing Latin and then later I learned ancient Greek. Sanskrit fit into my academic pursuits too. No, that makes perfect sense to me. We owe a huge debt to Sanskrit as a field, a field of Indo-European studies. The increased access to Sanskrit during the 18th and 19th centuries inspired early linguists to spot the similarities between the languages of India and the languages of Europe that they already knew, and really to ask the questions, hang on, you know, what is going on? Uh, these languages are far too similar than, you know, could be produced by just sheer coincidence. And off the back of that, I mean, it just, the idea just snowballed, and the field of Indo-European studies was born. I mean, it's, it's there in the word Indo-European, Indo, you know, it inspired this uh, massive field in which we now both work. You have now admirably demonstrated your enthusiasm and your expertise in the Sanskrit language, so this is fantastic. This is a great introduction, I think, uh, to people not familiar with the language. Now this is your chance to wax lyrical and demonstrate a little more of your enthusiasm for this ancient language. So, the question I'm going to pose to you now is, what is something, one thing, that you love about Sanskrit? So, predictably, probably like every guest on your show, I'm going to say, well, how can I possibly narrow it down to one thing? I mean, for the people who aren't familiar with Sanskrit at all, it's a, to give a quick overview of what it is before I have my grand reveal as to what I like, it's what we call a very synthetic language. That means that the order of words, which is so important in language like English, you change the meaning once you change the order of words, is slightly less relevant in Sanskrit. What matters is the form of the words. So if you take a verb, so like the verb to go, which has the root gum or gach in the present tense, if you want to say I go, it's gachami. But if you want to say he, she or it goes gachati. So different endings. And therefore the whole language is shaped by the endings of words rather than the word order. And that occurs with nouns and it occurs with verbs. That's not necessarily very interesting from an, from an ancient Indo-European point of view, but 
Sanskrit does it to a more extreme extent than the others. So an example of this would be things like cases. So in English, we use prepositions. If you want to say it's on the table or under the table, or if you want to say it's on the table or under the table, or if you wanted to say I stubbed my toe against the table, we use a lot of prepositions. In other languages, you just use case forms. Uh, so you'll use a locative case to say in somewhere, or use an ablative case to say from somewhere. And your average Ancient Indo-European languages using maybe four or five, and Sanskrit's using eight, which is probably as many as we thought they were in Proto-Indo-European. So there's a lot of this extra, what we call morphology, the way that words change shape in order to give meaning. But the thing that I like that I think is within the Indo-European context so spectacular about Sanskrit is that it has its own grammatical tradition. Now, a lot of languages have their own grammatical traditions, but the Sanskrit one is the best. It's really very, very intense, very, you know, the, the first... Generative grammar, anyone who's looking into linguistics will start seeing the term generative grammar, and it's very much associated with the 20th century America and, and Noam Chomsky. But the first record of a generative grammar, that is a system where it's a list of rules and you basically answer all the questions and it spits out a grammatical sentence, um, is by uh, the Sanskrit grammarian Panini, which you have to always write with a line over the A and a dot under the first end so that everyone knows that you're not saying Panini. And Panini had this generative grammar where it's still to this day recited as a way of uh, capturing uh, the Sanskrit grammar. And that is the beginning of this long grammarian tradition. Uh, and within that, just to give a small sense of why I like it so much, uh, is the way that Sanskritists talk about compound nouns. So a compound noun is whenever you stick two nouns together and make a new one. So in English, you can take the noun race, the noun car, and you can have a race car. Or you can have the color blue, and you can have eyes, and you can talk about a blue-eyed person. Now, Sanskrit, you can do this to the extent that you can have an entire sentence, basically, in, in, a, in a compound noun. You can say the shape of the moon at its waxing, in the dark, in a starry sky, and all of that would be uh, up to one long compound word, which is all very impressive. But the Sanskrit grammarians, when they talk about them, they categorize the compound nouns into different types. So race car is one type. It's not quite the same as blue-eyed. A blue-eyed is an adjective and a race car is a noun. So to take the blue-eyed example, the technical term for this, which incidentally we use very normally in English now, if, well, if you're a linguist, it's normal, um, is this is a bahuvrihi compound. Bahuvrihi is itself a Sanskrit compound word with the element bahu, meaning lots, and vrihi, meaning rice. So someone or something which is bahuvrihi, we might translate it as well-riced. So a well-riced field or a well-riced individual, meaning a wealthy individual. And what's clever about that is that the word bahuvrihi describes a bahuvrihi compound, but it is itself a bahuvrihi compound. And the Sanskrit grammarian tradition goes absolutely crazy for this style of naming convention. So every kind of compound word, like a bahuvrihi, or there are others, tatpurusha is another type, is itself an example of the thing that it's describing. And it just makes it so easy to remember. People may not realize this, but modern linguistics, the modern field of linguistics, is very European and very American in its origins. But there is a substantial proportion of terminology of linguistic jargon that does come from Sanskrit. Because we linguists in the West, we, we can't do any better. And some of these words actually kind of slip below the surface. I don't really think about them. In my work, I talk about sandy, for example. That's sandy ending in D-H-I, not sandy as in the name, as in Greece, sandy. And I use this term all the time, and it's a Sanskrit word. It perfectly describes what we need it to. It's talking about the relationships between adjacent sounds in a sequence of sounds. 
We owe a debt in linguistics to these Sanskrit grammarians. They were the first that we know of, and they were very good at it. Continuing on from the grammarian tradition, which is your thing that you love about the Sanskrit, or really the whole language and its whole context, what is now something that you want to leave our audience with? What is something that you want the good people at home to know about when it comes to the Sanskrit language? So this is again one of those questions where I could say so much, and I could do what I did to the previous question and sneakily give you a lot of extra information before I spuriously decide on what I think is the most important thing. I've said a lot about Sanskrit, and of course, I would like everyone to know everything that I've talked about so far. But if I had to pick one thing where I said this is going to push your beliefs about the language, it would be how much Sanskrit there is. We have this sense of it being something sort of far away and old and, and archaic and, and sort of dusty, but there is a gigantic amount of it. Even if we just look at the oldest texts, a nice fun fact is we take the Mahabharata, which is a very big. Uh, an important Sanskrit text, and it's a very central text for Hindus, and it has, you know, the, the grand story, many grand stories in it. The Mahabharata itself, one text, is famously ten times the length of the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. That's one text, and it's gigantic. And then on top of that, you have thousands of years of people continuing to compose, continuing to revitalize tradition, taking stories from the Mahabharata and uh, the other grand epic poem, the Ramayana, and retelling them and reshaping them and having Sanskrit drama and having Sanskrit philosophy and just the sheer volume of it. And what's more, there's so much of it that just hasn't been read and it still exists. There are manuscripts just stacking up in libraries in India and elsewhere and we're just waiting for people to come and read them and digitize them and spread the word. Now, there's a huge amount of stuff that's available online. And if you're really looking at getting to grips with the language, you will find more of it than you could ever really read in a lifetime. There's a saying about the Mahabharata that you can't read all of it because by the time you do read all of it, it's time for you to die. That's, I suppose, just an idea of how long it is rather than it is any kind of curse. Uh, but it's the same. There is so much Sanskrit, but there's even more to find. So if I had to give one thing about this language in particular as a language which is on the one hand not something that's natively spoken. I mean, yes, we could say there's lots of English, but that's, but that's perhaps unsurprising when you have four or five billion speakers. But this is a, a language which doesn't have a vast number of native speakers tweeting out. Some people do tweet in Sanskrit. Uh, but you don't have these kinds of gigantic corpora, but you have this huge literary tradition, which is just there to be explored. But you talk about texts here, and yes, you say there's this wealth of texts, but so much of Sanskrit, as you have already said, is the product of an oral tradition. This completely depends on an unbroken line of transmission, of one person transmitting it to the next generation, who transmits it to the next generation. And really, the fact that we have this wealth of Sanskrit, especially the older texts like the Rig Veda, is testament to the people, the scholars and students and teachers who have handed this down to us in such a complete form. So this amount, it, we would be nowhere with Sanskrit today without people who have passed it down to us as this incredible collection and incredible source for this ancient language. Yeah, well, so I, if I, you know, I agree with what you've said and say that's absolutely true. And although we do have now written versions of these recited texts, it's worth stressing, they continue to be recited to this day. There are priest communities where they will memorize the entirety of the Rig Veda and the Sama Veda and the Yajur Veda and however many other texts. And a little anecdote here, when I went to go and study Sanskrit in India, my Sanskrit teacher, uh, who is now retired, was a professor at Madras University, 
we were reading the Ramayana together and he would do one thing which is a little bit less common in the UK, uh, which is that he would make me read my texts aloud before I translated them. So we were reading the Ramayana and I would read it aloud and he didn't have a book in front of him. He just had it all in his head. So I would start reciting and I would make a mistake and he would say, no, I, I don't think that's what it is. And he would just off the top of his head reel, reel off whichever line it was. So there is still this very, very strong tradition of memorization not only in a religious context, but also in a scholarly context. So absolutely, the recitation is so central to this language and its survival. That's amazing. I mean, the skill involved for us to have this language and to have it in such abundance, that's incredible. Well, I think we should leave it there. This has been a fantastic introduction, a fantastic education in all of the Sanskrit language, the history, the culture, the features, what's special about it, what's not interesting about it as well. So thank you very much. A final question from me is, with your work and your research, where can people find it and where can people get in touch? Now, you might not believe me, uh, Danny, but there actually aren't very many Christian Ramprasads in the world. So if you search me online, you will probably find your way to some form of online presence that I have. But if I had to be formal about it, my website is www.krishnanjramprasad.co.uk and you can read more about my work there. Wonderful. Well, I highly recommend that people go check out the website. All that remains is for me to say thank you very much. Well, thank you. Sanskrit, as amply discussed and demonstrated by Krishnan, is an Indo-European language, which means that we find connections to it across the many languages of Europe that have influenced English. Here's one example of how the same prehistoric word has been borrowed into English from three directions. From Sanskrit, from Latin, and from Ancient Greek. The English word guru goes back to Sanskrit guruhu, which is a noun for a wise or venerable person, but originally an adjective that means heavy or serious. There's a common connection between heaviness and seriousness. Just compare English weighty. Thanks to a common origin, Sanskrit guruhu has cognate cousins in Latin and ancient Greek, grauis and barus, which both mean heavy or deep. From the Latin, English gets the words grave and gravity, and from the Greek, the baritone voice, and for measuring air pressure, the barometer. Gravity, gurus, and baritones, all connected by etymology. So, that's it for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, please do share the linguistic love. All recommendations, reviews, and retweets are sincerely appreciated and help A Language I Love Is to grow. Till the next time, then. Bye-bye. <laughs>